This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with Helen Mark. I'm standing high above the Ayrshire countryside on the top of the White Lee Plateau, surrounded by these tall conifers, which, well, they're <laughs> providing some shelter, which is great. And in this part of Scotland, the most incredible transformation took place over a 40-year stretch from an open moorland to dense forestation. And for this week's Open Country, I've come to find out how probably one of the greatest changes in the Scottish landscape has been seen through the eyes of the people who live and work the land around here. I'm with Ruth Tittensor. And Ruth, you have taken this story to heart, the story of this forever-changed landscape. Yes, it all started about seven or eight years ago when I read something by two very eminent people in Scottish forestry, that's Richard Tolman and Christopher Smout, and they noted that in the last half century there had been a greater change in the Scottish landscape than for two centuries at least. And this change was the planting of trees on actually 11% of Scotland. So whereas in 1960 there was only 5% of woodland over the Scottish landscape, in 2000 there was 17%. So somebody, some people, planted trees on 11% of Scotland in only 40 years. Who were they? And I recorded 60 people who had been involved. Yes, it was a big job, who either lived here worked here or actually planted the forest. One person planted a million trees in this forest. Good afternoon, I'm Ruth Tittensaw and I'm sitting with Mr Brian Spears in the town of Darville in the county of East Ayrshire. Mr Spears, I'm told that you worked in Whiteley Forest near here for a very long time. Can I start And to get a sense of the scale, are we talking about something like 10 million trees being planted? This forest has approximately 10 million trees, mostly conifers. I mean, it was incredibly hard work for everybody. We, we can't believe the hard work now. It's all done by machine. But the first trees were by hand. It was all by hand, right until the 1990s. 33 years it, it took to plant this forest, between 1960 and the 1990s. As time wears on, people forget, and the official story can be recorded, but an equally official but personal story is just as important. Did you plant the first tree? No, the second tree. (laughs) So, who planted the first tree? The forester at the time. How many trees were you expected to plant each day? The number of trees we aimed for was 1,000 to 1,200. We were given a piecework rate. Right. So the more you planted... The more you earned. Yes. Yes. This story hadn't been told from the point of view of the people who did it. They'd never been asked. 
there had been books and tomes by academics and journalists about the Forestry Commission and the politics of it and the economics of forestry. But in Scotland, the, the people who actually planted the forests prepared them and lived by them and in them. They'd never been asked why they did it, what they did, what tools they used, how it affected their lives and how the ecology was changed and the effect it had on the locality. And, and when you think that this was 11% of Scotland affected in this way, and yet we didn't ask the people involved. Can you remember your first day of work in Whiteley Forest? It was beginning of January, and it really was cold. It was that cold we asked the forester if it was all right to wear gloves, because our hands were numb. See, we can stand now in the shelter of this yeah. tree. Do you, do you hear that wind hitting the conifer mm. and all those needles sort of mm. protecting us from that great gust on the far side of this plantation? Mm. When the Forestry Commission came along, it was mostly incredibly poor land, difficult to make a living. Thick peat, wet peat that sheep disappeared in, horses fell into and cattle fell into and you were never seen again. And the productivity was something like, to every three acres, there would be one sheep. Not three sheep to one acre, it was one sheep to three acres. So you could see it was very difficult to make a living. And so they were quite interested in selling land, the worst land, their worst land to the Forestry Commission, as some of them do nowadays to have wind turbines on their land. It's another form of income. And these peat bogs, were they, are they dangerous? They can be if you stepped in one. Mm-hmm. It would probably take you up to waist level. Right. <laughs> yes. I mean, you couldn't even put one foot in front of the other when that happens. Yes. A place like that, just with sphagnum moss, you mm-hmm. learn to keep out through that. Yes. And walk yes. around about it yes. or whatever. Yes. What do you think, Robert, it took to be a, a farmer in this part of the world? Need the hardy and <laughs> no scared the hard work. Uh, and also, put up with a lot of rain. There's a lot of rain in the west of Scotland. So if you can put up with all that, uh, you, can, you can succeed. There's a lot of this hill that we're on now. You need to stick on the tracks. You can't actually go off the tracks or you'll get bogged and disappear. It's not bottomless, but it's the peat hags up here are quite deep. And it's it was worked more with horses in days gone by than the modern tractors because the horses could operate up here, whereas heavy modern machinery is just not equipped for this area. So I'm standing here with Robert Muir. Behind us on the hill there, that was the farm your father had. Yes. So you grew up there. I grew up at Tack House, yeah. So you would have looked across this open moorland yes. that we're on, yeah. but it, the, the openness would have continued on continued and on. Continued for miles, yeah. This was all farm, this was all sheep land up on the hill here and some rough cows in the summer. Well, rough cows as we call them. Hill cattle. But they weren't wintered out here because the weather's too harsh and there was very little shelter. And then they came to start planting the trees. Mm-hmm. Can you remember that? Yes, yes, I remember it well. I remember they came in, the forest was ploughed from the west to the east. And I remember the, the ploughing tractors coming across the hill, as you can see on the horizon there. And the, the ploughing tractors came in 
early part of 1972 and you could actually see them changing the landscape as they came. They were darkening the hill. And I had envisaged it going to be like the Grand Caledonian forests, full of wildlife and a mixture of trees and open spaces and wild animals. As it turned out, it's a factory of Sitka with very little living in it. But there was no knowing that at the time. No, no. Even the Forestry Commission were still relatively young at that time. And I, I do believe that they're improving their methods now. But it was using some pretty bad land up, wasn't it? Yeah, but a lot of the people round and about didn't think it was a good idea. As I say, on the other hand, as a young chap myself, I thought it was a good idea because we needed timber. But it's actually turned into a more barren landscape than before it was planted, in my opinion. We could walk a mile, a couple of miles round here, and if you put up two birds that you could get a shot at, I'd be quite surprised. And yet, growing up here in the early 70s, you would get a bag and a morning's walk, as of a bag of between pheasants, grouse, duck, whatever. But not anymore. And Ruth, this is post-war, Second World this War. Is, the decision was made yes. that we need more trees. They chose Whiteley Plateau. Yes. In Britain as a whole, the decisions were made after the First World War and the Forestry Commission was set up in 1919 specifically to ensure that if there was another war, we'd have some homegrown timber and wouldn't run out in a time of desperate need. Another war came, so our own home woodlands were used yet again for things like pit pops. We're desperate for pit pops for coal, of course. The trees in existence were used, and so we needed to increase the planting all over Britain, and most of it was done in Scotland after the Second World War. We used to walk that moor to collect gulls' eggs, and it was always done first Sunday in May. That's when the gulls nested. Don't go two days before it because they didn't, you didn't get any eggs. When you went to collect the eggs of hunt for the gulls, you came to within, oh, maybe about a few hundred yards of the area where they nested. And you know, they got up, it was a huge mass cloud of white. There were also an area in it which was very wet and boggy. You didn't go across that. Some people did because they attached boards on their feet. They were like snowshoes. And they could walk on the bog to collect the eggs. I'm now at the south side of this vast forest plantation. But you know, it's very hard to get a sense of the scale of this tree cover, really. It is. And Hugh Hendry, now you remember back to before the trees were ever planted. So your memories are very special. Well, they are, because I have a lot of memories. Now, I'm talking about the days of the Second World War and after the Second World War. And food at that time was very scarce. So gold eggs, or any egg in actual fact, was a delicacy. You collected the eggs in the old woven wicker baskets. When your mother used to hang the washing out, she collected her washing and put them in these baskets. That amount of eggs collected, and they would track them down to the valley. It was mainly done by, we'll say, the farmer workers in the area, and of course, as youths. <laughs> but since forestry, they started to disperse. 
What's a gull's egg actually like to eat? Uh, you could fry them. Don't boil them. The egg or the shell was too soft. They were mainly used for baking. When you did bake with them, well, I didn't bake, my mother baked with them. If you bake in a sponge, the sponge actually turned out instead of a white, fluffy sponge. It was actually a sort of pink, fluffy sponge. Did people come from far and wide to do this? Yes, you met some people on the road here, seeking out where the gulls nested. We used to take them up to the gulls' hags and moorlands and show them the eggs. And it was a great thing for them because they had never seen this in their life. They were a wee bit slow walking than what we were. All right, they kind of held us back, so we didn't like doing the likes of that. <laughs> fairness. Right. They arrived in the bus up from Kilmarnock, uh, and they didn't realise the distance it was from where the bus dropped them off, uh, the bus stop, to where the gulls nested. Right. And they were only reached half roads, and they were shouting, Help, I'm lost. Where am I? Where does the gulls lay? That was the reason why we came along and assisted them and took them to the place. So there was a danger up there? It was wild? It's isolated. It's all open countryside. It is. You could be left in a really middle of a storm, even going up to the moorland, even hunting for your eggs, the gold's eggs. But now we just have conifers to look at. Not the landscape that you're describing of bog and rush and... Which is very disappointing to likes of me. When they were first planting the forest, really you could have had no idea as to how huge and how dominant it was. You must have just watched it as a young man, them well, going out with their tractors and their saplings to plant I trees. I can agree with that, yes. It was accepted at that time. But I think the real reason for... <laughs> There's none of us knew exactly the extent of forestry at that time. I'm quite sure that if we had it envisaged that it was going to be the vast extent that it is at the present time, yes, I think there would have been quite a few objections. You're talking about a massive change in the Scottish landscape. Some people say as big a change as was when the clearances happened and they took all the people off the lands in the highlands to put the sheep in. You're talking about a lost landscape the open upland moorland that you remember so well for its gull eggs and its reeds and rushes and sinkholes. Well, I still miss it. I have a lot of memories up here and I still hold on to the memories. But although I can pass on my memories for people that's coming after me, they'll have their own memories. And they will be of the trees? They will be of the way it is at the present time. Perhaps in their eyes it'll look beautiful. Hey, but <laughs> for me and I shall part, it's a nice sore. And why did you decide to move to work with the Forestry Commission? It was creating a forest yes. from nothing. Right. At the time, it sounded quite job satisfying yes. to do that. Yes. It was an exciting opportunity for the people who could refinance their farming businesses. There was work, although not a great deal, for local people who wanted to work outdoors. And it was an opportunity for the Forestry Commission, whom the government had said, plant, 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 we must have timber, we must have this important resource, the second largest import after oil in Britain, timber. And they were only allowed to use the worst land because any good land, they had to plant food crops. That's why you have conifers. 
And the trees, what sort of trees were they that you were planting? Mostly Sitka spruce. Yes. Occasionally larch, European larch. Right. The, these Sitka spruce, the first year, mm -hmm. they get established with roots. But thereafter, they can grow 12 to 18 inches a year. And that's a good amount, is it? That's fast growth. Yes, yes. that is fast right. growth. So that's one of the reasons why they were chosen. They, they yes. could grow well up they on the grow, moors. Yes. Right. The principal forest species used all over the UK is the Sitka spruce from North America. Piceus sitchensis is the Latin name. And it's very easy to identify. It's very, very prickly, really painful. Oh, yes. And uh, the undersurface of the leaf is a distinctly glaucous blue colour. Sometimes the upper surface also has a blue cast. But that blueness gives it away straight away because the other species which is widespread also in Britain is the Norway spruce, the old but, Christmas tree. But most of this forest is Most of this Sitka. is Sitka. Most right. of all the forests in Britain are Sitka. Uh, and why are quite a lot of them yellowing? Oh, they try to make it look a little less severe by planting things like larch, and that's what they are. They are larch trees which colour very beautifully in the autumn then drop the needles and are the bear for the rest of the winter. I'm on the northern edge of Whiteley Forest and really, you know, we're only just about 10 or 15 miles from Glasgow at this point. But the thing about these forests is you have to go inside. You have to get that sense of leaving the light behind and stepping into the darkness. And within just a few steps, that's what happens. You duck down underneath the branches and it's almost pitch black. And you can see the ridges still where they made the original ploughings and put the young saplings in, they're still there. But these great trees tower high above our heads. And I'm with Brian Simpson, who's a naturalist, who's explored an awful lot of these forests. Now, you remember, Brian, because you saw the change, you remember how it was at the start, before they planted the trees, so you'd have known what the wildlife and the, the ecology of the area was then? Yes, well... And how it changed? It's changed radically. I mean, in those days, all this, where we're standing here would be what they call sheepwalk country. It was rushes, thistles and coarse grasses. But at the same time, it made good habitat for things like curlews. And if you were lucky and you did a hike across this country, you could sometimes come across maybe two or three curlews nests on the way over. And also, you may be lucky, you've got metapipits nesting on the sides of little gullies. And if you're very lucky indeed, then you may find the nest of a red grouse. Now, I may say that it's almost impossible now to find these anywhere. How, how quickly did it change and what did it change well, to? once the trees were planted, it was only a matter of a few years. In the initial stages, when the forest was first planted, the trees are very small and the ridges are quite deep. So there's plenty of places for things to hide. And so you've got an abundance of voles there. And consequently, you quite often saw short-eared owls. Several at a time. But as the trees came up over the next few years and thickened, that was it. The owls couldn't nest there any longer, and so they faded away, and you saw less and less. And now you're very lucky indeed if you see a short-eared owl up here in the Whiteleys Forest. At all. And the darkness increased? Oh, the darkness increased. Well, as we're standing here, this is a good example. Once it increases to a certain degree, it cuts out so much light that even the bryophytes and mosses can grow as you can see for yourself mm. it's it's almost devoid of any kind of green material yes it's so barren yes it's just like a desert in, under here and of course the thickness of the spruce needles mm -hmm. is another factor and also the acidity 
Let me scrape and scrape away at it. You'll find what it's is down like, there? Yeah, you'll find it's a bit like uh, compost underneath. Oh, yeah. Oh, and it smells too. Yeah. Now I've done that. Mouldy, dank. If these trees were cleared away, within a few years, the green plants would reassert themselves. You'd get ferns coming in, you'd get grasses coming in, you'd get fireweed possibly, the rushes would come in. It's simply because of the lack of light which is holding back the growth. But if you find a patch, like over there for instance, we can see a patch, you'll find it's much greener. Let's go over there. the light intensity has increased quite considerably. So we come to a place where, for whatever reason, a tree may have fallen down or been felled, yes. and a little bit of light has hit the ground, and you have a new life forming, don't you? That's right, well there we have, right in front of us here, look. What have we got? Because you're a lichen and a moss... A moss man. <laughs> now, what we have here is uh, the two species of moss. So this is Hypnum, Hypnum jutlandicum. The call. These have common names, but very few of us are, are au fait with the English names. They're a fairly recent creation. A hugely abundant moss in this forest. And this one here, it's a very strangely attenuated species of sphagnum moss. Now, sphagnums are all over the place, but principally in the boggy areas. But suddenly we have... A green colour. We've got green with, here, within yes. Within the dark conifers. And here is a, a relic of what used to grow here. This is blaeberry. Oh no, we've just got the spines of the, the bush just left. The dead, dead, but there's some, oh. some life coming back. You see the green shoots here? The very bottom. Because the light's coming through, it's beginning to regenerate. Now, if the light persists over the next few years, this could green up this blaeberry quite extensively, you know. I'm wondering, were there good things that came of this great planting, this great greening of the White Lee Plateau? Well, I would say, before the forest came, it really was quite a bleak area. And the wildlife, although I've mentioned some interesting birds and things, the wildlife really wasn't that wonderful, you may say. But when the forest came, it diversified. And even now, even these thicker areas, you still get these species like red poles or, or twites, perhaps, and the ravens over at the far side of the forest. But uh, what to my mind is one of the most wonderful uh, phenomena that's happened since the forest was uh, created was simply because when they fenced it off they kept out the sheep and the cows so consequently all the bryophytes, the mosses and the liverworts have had a chance to develop in a way they would never normally develop outside the forest and so you have these wonderful cushions usually along the sides of the forest are what they call the rides. The rides are the areas which are kept clear of trees in case there's fires and these rides are always full of light so you get these wonderful golden cushions of uh, another species of moss called Hylocomium splendens and it's really a resplendent. So for you a new excitement oh, yes, absolutely, was brought yes. here. I, th- I think it was absolutely magical you know. It must be understood that these Almost every single one of these were here long before the forest came. In fact, most of these are what are called relic species from previous forests, long ago, long, long ago. We talked about thousands of years ago. And when the forests disappeared, they managed to hang on. And now the forests have come back in a different form. They're still here, and they respond wonderfully well if they get the right conditions inside a modern forest. So it's not entirely devoid of life, as most people tend to think. It was hard physical work. Uh, have you had backache or arthritis or anything like that uh, as a result of all the lifting and carrying? And yes. You have? I have right. now. Right. I have yes. now. Yes. My hips, my knees, right. since then, yes. are suffering yes. because of it. Yes. When you're talking, Ruth, I get such a strong sense of how proud you are mm-hmm. about this story being able to be told. 
I was interested in the whole process. All the people involved, both those people who, farmers and landowners who sold the land for afforestation and why they did or didn't, as well as the people who actually planted the trees or ploughed the land and the Forestry Commission officers whose job it was to organise it all and run each individual forest. These are the sorts of people who are so often forgotten but on whom we depend for difficult types of work in the countryside and who themselves are extremely proud of what they do and have told the intricate story of how the landscape was changed from a bleak, wet moorland to a living, growing forest.